You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because some of us can't bake or knit? I'm Fonda Lee. I'm Marcia Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 64. The times, they are a-changin'. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of World Building for Masochists, and welcome back, Fonda Lee! Way, way back, Fonda was our very first guest on the podcast, and so we are thrilled to welcome her back for another go-round. Fonda, how have you been? Oh, you know, just like (laughs) getting through a pandemic. (laughs) What do you say? Not not living through a pandemic and, and... and releasing the rest of a trilogy or yeah, anything like yeah, that. Just, no. Just, just a few small things here and there. Uh, yeah. I, it's funny that you were mentioning that I was on way back when World Building for Masochists was like an infant podcast. And here we are. It feels like not very long and also a thousand years. But yes. it is great to be back. Well, for any listeners just jumping into the podcast now, would you mind introducing yourself and giving a little bit about your work? I'm Fonda Lee. I write science fiction and fantasy novels. I am most well known for the Greenbone Saga, which is an epic urban fantasy, Asia-inspired martial arts gangster family saga that comes to its conclusion on November 30th. It began with Jade City in 2017, The sequel was Jade War, and Jade Legacy is on its way out. I'm also the author of a few science fiction novels, Zero Boxer, Exo, and Crossfire, and I am a world-building masochist. And And that's that's why we love having you here. Yes, and it shows in just the best ways. Just the best. I have to say, I'm I'm very smug right now because I got my hands on an e-galley of Jade Legacy. I have read Jade Legacy. So I'm very smug about it. It's so freaking good, Fonda. I just, ah, so good. Um, I'm delighted. And seriously, you talk about a world that you feel like you could you could go and visit. Like, it, it's that thoroughly realized, which is why I am so excited. I wasn't on the podcast the first time you were on, uh, so I'm delighted to have you with us now. I uh, yeah. po- apologize for any emotional reactions that might have been elicited on a plane ride. Yeah, I was (laughs) full on like trying not to have a hysterical breakdown in my mask with this very nice girl next to me. Like I'm like, I'm hold it together, hold it together. (laughs) Okay, okay, I can get through this. (laughs) It was it was a lot. It was a lot on a plane. But I did that to myself. I made that choice. I'm glad you did. And in the end, weren't you happy about that choice? I I mean the other choice was not finishing the book until like the next day, and I couldn't make that choice. So Oh. I had I had to keep going. <laughs> well, I have to admit I have I have not read Jade Legacy yet, but I do remember just the feeling of immersion, Founda, that you manage within the first just like few pages of Jade City. That it's like you open this book and start reading it, and you are plunged into this world, um, which I think shows us you are a world building masochist. You're one of our people. This is the delight of the book. Is <laughs> one of the delights of the book is just feeling this world and just feeling how immersive it is. And I was curious if there were any world building details that were just particular pet favorites of yours. Oh, there's so many. Uh, Gosh, since the first time I was on here, 
um, having written Jade War and Jade Legacy, the second book expanded the story internationally. So there were a lot of um, additional places and different, different cultures that I could get really masochistic about world building. And then this last book really was uh, about showing societal change, which is what we're going to talk about today. And taking that world building and cubing it because now I'm moving both through like space and time. And there are a lot of little details um, that I, I loved in that process and maybe just like to pick one of them. Um, in Jade Legacy, the role of media comes into play. So there's a subplot involving the film industry and these traditional Jade powers that these people have had for thousands of years is depicted on the big screen and being shown to film goers around the world. And that's something that the main characters actually take advantage of and use to build their global influence. So little things like that, where I got to show like the intersection of the magic, but also globalization and uh, modernization and cultural cross-pollination and all of that was just uh, a lot of fun to involve. I'm ridiculously excited to read this. <laughs> <laughs> Cass is just also making faces at us. Of like, you have I no am. idea, friends. You, have no, you idea. have no idea. Well, and what's great is that there's always sort of a line when like there's a big jump in years or whatever and, and you let the reader know that X years have passed. My brain eventually stops sort of clocking those in a certain way, but the technology communicates also that time has passed. Like, all of a sudden, somebody's got a flip phone and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Like, that's new. That's, you know, like, it's, it's, and I'm not saying who or what context, but like, it was just like, oh, this makes perfect sense. It was seamless. And it just tells you time has passed. Yeah, I had quite a challenge with dealing with like, just the scope of this last book, because it covers so many years. And one of the things that helped me do that was actually the world building because Greenbone Saga is pegged to like a latter half of the 20th century analog. So I was able to just keep that parallel in mind as I was writing the story and include things like technological details. For example, you know, now instead of them typing on typewriters in the office, they've got uh, computers, um, someone's got a flip phone. And, um, and beyond that, there was all these other things that I kind of had to keep in mind too. Um, like social change, um, you know, the role of women changing, um, the, the destigmatization of shine, which is this drug that is new in the first book and is like viewed with a great deal of suspicion, but it um, gets improved and it evolves and it, it becomes more accepted over like the course of the story. Geographic things like the city growing or, uh, you know, the... Um, the ethnic enclave that's in Port Massey, which is this city in another country, it evolves and like kind of spreads out and different communities spring up. So all of like those different things in the world building also help mark the passage of time in a way that is more seamless than just like, you know, the header at the top of your chapter that's like five years pass, right? You can show five years pass just with all these world building cues. And I love your point too, that it's so tied to plot, right? Because you know, when the world changes in such, gosh, latter half of the 20th century, very drastic ways in a short amount of time in a lot of a lot of ways, like that's gonna affect how people come together and what they do and how they react and all kinds of awesome things. Yeah, definitely. 
Also, legal changes and geopolitical changes. There were a lot of those in the latter half of the 20th century, and there's some of those analogs in the series as well. So um, there's a whole Cold War situation that's happening in that third book between um, two of the major powers. And a lot of that is inspired by like Cold War politics and like the interference of foreign powers um, in all sorts of places around the world, um, you know, during during the Cold War. So those could help drive the plot as well, because they were things that were going to influence like the, the environment that the main characters were working in. That's so cool. Just also because too often in fantasy, we see the thing where five years pass, 20 years pass, 100 years pass, 1000 years pass, and nothing changes. Like all the borders are static, all the cities are exactly the same size. And that's, I mean, A, that's just not reality. That's not life. And that's not a well-realized fantasy world. And you really do have to build four-dimensionally to give it that kind of life. So I, I love that you put that level of of thought and growth and change over the course of time. Yeah, it is interesting how often in fantasy there is this sense of timelessness. And oftentimes you do have fantasy worlds where you get the sense that like, these people have been here forever and they've always been, they will be here forever. And there's sort of like this ancient uh, feeling to it. But what can happen with that is sometimes you end up with um, this sense of cultural homogeneity, right? Like elves are all like this, orcs are all like this. And we know in our own real life, like that doesn't happen. I mean, elves would move and there would be all these different enclaves of elves and different subcultures <laughs> of elves and some elves would mix with the orcs. And so like that messiness of human change and social change and migration of populations is something that... Um, I love to see in fantasy. I think that we could see more of. Definitely. Completely agree. The The person I crack on, because he's a big enough, you know, dragon, he can take it, is George R. R. Martin. And the fact that, like, the Starks have been in Winterfell for, like, 6,000 years. The same family, in the same castle, with the same level of technology. Like, it's... And the same personality of the North. Like, the Northerners are like this. They've always been like this. They will always be like this. And it's like, that's just, it's so not realistic. And it would be so much more fun to see more of those shifts and see characters having to engage with those shifts. Not just that they happened sometime in the past, but that they are ongoing and things that you have to learn new technologies or new languages or new cultural norms in a way that we we don't so often see. No one's life is going to be the same life that their grandparent had. Mm -mm. And their grandparent is not going to have the same life that their grandparent had. But so often, like, Eddings is another one I love to, to smack on. I, where, like, every region is locked in of, like, this is what this region is. And it's been that way <laughs> for millennium. And, like, there's one thing that's like, this city has stood for 500 years because somebody might attack it. And we're ready for that attack that hasn't happened within... <laughs> 20 generations of lifetime, but we're still ready well and if, they're, if they're dealing just with, in case if they're dealing with change it tends to be like political change like oh no there might be a different ruling family yeah. and that would change everything and it's like oh would it, would it actually right. like <laughs> what, what in your actual day-to-day -day life would change with just a different family ruling the same kingdom in the same way with the same values forever you know and i think too yeah. that you know Fonda, your books are more modern, not contemporary, but getting closer to an analog. And I think that we forget that, like, change moved fairly quickly in further back historical time periods, too. Like, you know, just because we, we don't have the experience of having, well, some of us 
having lived through like going from landlines to the flip phone to the like early clunky smartphones to like what we have now like yes like we experienced a period of rapid change and so we think that we're somehow unique and it's like we're not really that unique like you go back in time and I don't know that there's any spot that you'd say like yes 50 years would have been completely unchanged there wouldn't have been any major shifts in political dynamics or culture or just who lived there people moved around a lot historically a lot of our major like shifts historically are because this group of people moved over here and they brought with them all kinds of change and upheaval and wonderful human messiness. Yeah, I I think you just have to study real history to realize that every generation, even, um, you know, pre-modern times, there was change and people were the only constant is change, right? Like that's kind of the, the saying that, um, that we toss around. And infusing some of that into your world building is going to make your world feel more realized, more real, and also more dynamic because all of that change can create conflict, right? Every time there's something that changes in our world, people are gonna be on different sides of it. There was huge upheaval when the printing press was invented. Radical societal change. And those sorts of things in your world can put your characters on different sides of an issue. They can pit them against each other. They can introduce different antagonists. They can complicate the narrative. And all of that is just fodder for more great stories. So in fact, the, having a backdrop that feels like it's alive and that it's evolving is only going to help your story. See, that was just so good that we have nothing to say now is the problem. That's... Yeah. <laughs> we, we just, we had to just sit and marinate in that for a minute. <laughs> but I think, but that is such a crucial thing that I, I wish we saw more of in, even in more traditional or epic fantasy, that sense of like, what is the upheaval going to look like? What is the style of change going to look like? And it's not just like, well, we defeated the Dark Lord and now we have the Good King. But like, is, who gets to define what the Good King is? But are, also, you don't get too often the, well, we, we've torn down the monarchy and now we get to build a new government. I mean, yeah, because I mean, the, those triggers for major societal change and major change over time are not just political, right? I mean, it's like you've got all kinds of different triggers for how things evolve and what direction things get pushed in from technology to social norms to um, one of the things we want to talk about today, which was diaspora. Just the movement of human people is going to instigate all kinds of changes. Yeah, one of the things that I did in Jade Legacy was I had the main characters who are the leaders of this clan take into account all the different ways that they would potentially maneuver to gain advantage. And it wasn't just the kind of like street fights or, or political power that predominated in the first and second books, but like I mentioned earlier, media, but also uh, medicine and also l- lobbying lawmakers and, you know, things like that, that they, and the nice thing about having a book that spanned that amount of time was I could pay it off. I could have a character in chapter three be like, look, this law is really bad for us. Like we need to start a marketing campaign and, and like PR campaign to try and shift this. And that's the sort of thing that could take like a decade or more to actually come to fruition. But with a book that spanned that amount of time, I could actually make it pay off. 
later on in the novel and then show like that it gradually had an effect on people. It depends on, you know, obviously what kind of story you're telling, but uh, some of those things can can be really fruitful places to explore in your world building if you haven't considered them before. Yeah, and I think that the key thing is too that it doesn't even have to make it into your story to be there in the background of the world building. That if you, you know, you don't have to be writing a book that spans 30 years to include some of these ideas and to say, well, why are why are we where we are here? Well, oh, it's because so-and-so 30 years ago planted these seeds and this guy ran against this guy in this election. He got beaten because of this mud smear campaign or whatever. And that's why we are where we are today. It was because yeah. of this, you know, long-term, long-term thing that happened. And I think you can really show it if you have multi-generational characters, which is also something we don't always see a ton of in, in fantasy novels is having different generations represented in the main characters. Cause it can be like, you know, grandma still uses her, her old her old means of, of gathering magic crystals because that's how she's always done it. But we've got a new way now, grandma. Come on, I can teach you how to do that. Like you can you can sort of show what people are used to, who has acclimated to change, who hasn't, if you've got a widespread of generations among your characters, even if your your story only takes place in a single day, you can show that spectrum mm-hmm. too. Yeah. One of the things I did when I was doing the work setting up uh, Velocity for Revolution is have a timeline of like all the things that happened and then within that timeline worked out the generational divides and which characters fit into which generations and thus how like their youths specifically would influence the choices they made as adults because of what they grew up with as opposed to even like what a younger sibling grew up with that was a big part of that process of just coming up with what the generations were and how those were defined within the world. Yeah, I love that. And one of the benefits of having um, multiple POVs is um, sometimes being able to show those different attitudes um, based on like generational divides. And even if you don't have multiple POV um, stories, you can still have secondary characters that are showing generational attitudes shifting or how like the younger generation is either embracing or rejecting or, or opposing or, or evolving things that they're... Because I, I think one thing to keep in mind is like every generation thinks that the one before them screwed things up. By including that in your world building, you can kind of show what are the current conflicts in that world and where do people want the world to go? And there's always going to be division in terms of disagreement as to like whether change right now is good or bad. I feel like it's also an element of having interesting, well-rounded characters that like no matter what fields you're in, there is some kind of change happening within that field or within that hobby or within that interest or whatever it is. And people are talking about it and people have opinions about it and whether it's you know, in medicine, we should be treating this, you know, with medicine instead of surgery now, or it's, you know, in academia, we should be looking at ungrading methods instead of looking at, you know, grading this way. Like people are having conversations constantly about the way we used to do things. Should we try a different way? This is, you know, this is the way of the future. No, it's not. It should be like over here. So if your characters are interesting, well-rounded, normal humans with, you know, different interests and passions and hobbies and professions like they're going to be plugged into all kinds of discourse about change and the effects of change 
this is where I think, and we we um, mentioned that we're going to talk about about diaspora, where I think fantasy can learn from science fiction, because themes of diaspora and change are much more prevalent in science fiction than in fantasy as a whole. I would say, uh, if I think about science fiction, there. Are so many stories that involve either technological change or social change or humans spreading out from earth and seeding other planets and colonizing other worlds and so the idea of migration and dispersion of people from an original homeland is something that comes up a lot in science fiction and i don't think that that is at all limited to science fiction. I feel like fantasy could explore a lot of those ideas as well um, because they've happened historically as well as, you know, potentially um, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I was, when we were started talking about, we wanted to talk about, you know, cultural diaspora and, and people, movement of people. I was thinking about like, what are good examples of that within fantasy? And I was like, there aren't as many as I had hoped to think of. You're right. I was like, there's, a, oh no, that one was sci-fi. Oh, well, there's, no, that's sci-fi too. <laughs> because there is just such a theme in sci-fi of cultures meeting one another and the venturing out into new space and what happens when you get to that new space. What do you find there? What results are there of contact with people that you didn't know before? And I feel like it is a little bit it's a region to explore in fantasy in greater depth and detail. Invitation, listening, listening writers, play with that one. Yeah, for sure. But like, I think there's a lot of that energy put into fantasy world building of like working so hard to define what each country is, even in the most simplest way. Like this is where the horse people live and this is where the ship people live and this is where the, the, the merchant people live. And then because that becomes I want to say rigid, it then becomes near impossible to then take that and then go, this is what it's like when the merchant people have a place to have moved in mass into where the horse people live and what happens in those little enclaves of that. I think that's a little too, it ends up being more next level thinking than a lot of world building does. Yeah, but that's what we're here for. Next level. <laughs> that's what we're here for. That is what I live for. Yes. Because there is that question, right? Like when, when the ship people have a big group that moves into the horse people territory like is it do they is it they took a ship somewhere do they, you know they as got you do. Ships. <laughs> do the horse people get on their horses and leave do they have a fight do they learn from one another and become the seahorse people i don't know but there's all kinds of stories you could explore about what happens when these people come into contact with one another yeah and not just in a passing way but in a we are going to have to deal with one another being in the same space kind of way yeah the thing I love about exploring the idea of cultural diaspora in a speculative fiction space is that um, every time groups of people and cultures meet each other, there is something created. Either there is conflict or there's trade or, or there's, uh, you know, there's inter intermarriage, there's um, cultural cross-pollination, there's always something new happening. Um, and uh, if you, you think about like what, how that's happened in our own world, so much um, that we experience in our world is a result of cultural cross-pollination. Um, everything from you know, fashion and food and media and so many things um, are, are a result of, of different cultures colliding. 
and sometimes in fruitful ways and sometimes in, in destructive ways. Um, and one thing to think in to keep in mind if you are world building a diaspora uh, into your fantasy or science fiction world is what is retained from the homeland versus what is changed or adapted. Sometimes the expatriate community that migrates somewhere else will hold on to values from that homeland for longer than the people who stayed. Sometimes the, the subset of people who left a homeland have a particular set of values that influence the culture that they set up elsewhere. Um, for example, the Puritans who left England and came to America had really specific values that have influenced New England you know, to, to this day um, versus those who left um, as, and became you know, as convicts in Australia have, have influenced that society. So um, think about, you know, why are people, not just like how the cultures um, interact when they meet, but why are the people migrating in the first place? Are they going someplace as um, refugees with nothing and interacting with a more dominant civilization? Are they going there as conquerors or colonists to plunder someplace? Um, are they going there as uh, privileged immigrants who have wealth, but they are um, fleeing, you know, or leaving a despotic kingdom? So what's kind of precipitated that migration of people? And what do they hold on to when they get to a new place? And what do they change or adapt um, as a result of coming into contact with other people or other environments? And um, you can create, there's so many subcultures and uh and nuances of diaspora culture to explore absolutely and i think that the point about do you hold on to things versus do you change them is really good to explore and like why and like what pressures are there to change or to hold on to things because this is a really stupid example, but I think it was one of the food documentaries on Netflix was talking about how Taco Bell, the first Taco Bell, stole its recipes from a little joint across the street that was owned by a Mexican couple that had opened up a restaurant, and it had to adapt all of their ingredients to what was available in the local like supermarkets and like food distribution. So they were using things like ground beef and iceberg lettuce and shredded American cheese because that's what they had available. And then this person looks at that and like steals it for their franchise restaurant that they're going to open up and calls that, you know, Mexican food. But it's interesting that it's like what this couple was doing was adapting what they knew to what was, you know, around them in terms of this is the pressures of what you have available. And I just, I loved that, that, weird little like is taco bell authentic mexican no but wait <laughs> the very question about authenticity is is so often brought up with any any diaspora culture mm -hmm. that like what do we mean by authentic and especially in terms of food like are authenticity and quality why are they treated like they are the same axis when they do not necessarily <laughs> represent the same axis whatsoever yeah like, what what the hell is authentic anyway? Like, what does that even right. mean? <laughs> Who gets to decide that? Yeah, food is a great place to very seamlessly and easily include these themes in your fantasy world. I am reminded of this time I went and um, traveled to Peru back in the before times. 
And Peru has great food, fantastic food. And one dish they have in particular is called chifa. And chifa is Peruvian fried rice. It's very tasty. And the reason it's called chifa is because Chinese immigrants to Peru would say, would open these restaurants and they would like try to bring people into their restaurants. And the Chinese um, word for, for eat is chifan. I'm probably butchering it because I'm not a native fluent Mandarin speaker, but they would say chifan, chifan. And they would like try and bring people in to eat. And so like chifa was like a word that got attached to the specific dish of like Peruvian fried rice because of the immigrants who had moved there and, and introduced it to that culture and adapted it to that new um, environment. I mean, just as you guys say, just the amount in Latin American and Mexican cuisine that involves rice that came from Chinese immigrants coming to coming from the West as far as as far as Latin America is concerned and how much that influenced the cuisine, but not necessarily the culture in 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 fascinating ways, but but that single words then then slip through, and the, that's that's the really fun stuff as far as like if you can integrate that that kind of thinking into into your world building. And language also is another place where you can do that with slang or with pigeon elements of the cultures where I I, I certainly know people who are uh, bilingual and will mix up their languages and create sort of a slang as a result of bilingualism. And I, one of the great examples of this that I can think of in speculative fiction is in The Expanse, where the Belter civilization has like their whole own slang as a result of like the different groups of people that go and work on those stations and live in the belt. And they have like their, they, they've developed this pigeon kind of like, um, if you think of places like Hawaii that had so many different um, ethnic groups mingling in, in that one place, um, in order to communicate, they would have to like create their own mock uh, pidgin language uh, and, and different words from different languages would get all mashed together. Um, and I would love to see that in a fantasy setting. Like what is the pidgin that the orcs and the elves use, you know, when they're trying to like communicate with each other? I think too, language is a fun place to play with. Like, what is a culture valuing? Are they valuing maintaining? This is our language. We are going to maintain it. It's very important not to let it die out versus the way you get ahead is to learn this dominant language. So learn that. And then like the swinging back around of like, oh no, we can't let our language die out. So you have these sort of like revival programs, like like Welsh was like almost a dead language. And then they were like, no, we need to save Welsh and start teaching it in schools again and start getting people back on the Welsh bandwagon. But it's just, it's interesting to kind of see how that plays with how, especially like in education and in parenting, how do you value language? How do you value sort of amalgamation into another culture versus maintenance of a separate culture? When we were teaching Spanish classes to children, we would see that a lot where we would get students where their parents had Spanish-speaking parents themselves and didn't, their parents didn't give it to them. But now they were like, oh, my child needs to learn it so that they can actually talk to their grandparents because like, there's literally no ability to communicate through there because my parents didn't give it to me and now I can't give it to my children. And that's fascinating to me. that that's, and, and how much of that is 
imposed by say the colonizing culture or mainstream culture that's like no you you don't get to have your own little enclave where you speak your own language we're going to stop that that's that's another element to play with potentially yeah and the interesting ways of balancing that like i had a friend who she she was korean and her whole family was still living in korea and so her rule was we speak korean at home we only speak korean at home outside of the home we only speak english like to make sure her daughters were like very well versed in both languages because it was very valuable to her that they would be able to speak korean with her family and that they'd be bilingual so it was an interesting way to negotiate that i think with the small children that lasted like maybe a couple of years before there was like slipping <laughs> all over the place because small children are not fantastic with the <laughs> following but it was an interesting like reflection of i value both of these these are both very important and so we are going to value these you know value being bilingual in this house yeah another thing to keep in mind um, when you're depicting cultural migration and and diaspora is um, to what extent are newcomers welcomed or not in a society and do they have trust in the social structures and uh, the authority of that new land and I'm I think about you know for example in America, a lot of the tongs in Chinatowns came about because people didn't trust that the police were going to be on their side. And if you have a, a community of people that go to a new country and they don't feel welcomed or they feel like, you know, they can't trust the, the predominant culture to look after their interests, then they're going to organize in other ways. So um, what support systems do those people put into place? And how do they organize to survive in that new place? Or, or are, they, are they welcomed because they're there for trade or, or what have you? So there, consider that as well. What is the clash between different cultures? And there's different layers of culture clash because there's culture clash that occurs between different cultures that show up in the same place. Like think of like Irish versus Italian gangs um, in New York City, right? Or I'm watching the HBO show, show Warrior, and that's got like Chinese tongs versus like the Irish mafia. There's also, though, culture clash between diaspora communities and the homeland, because oftentimes they have different interests when they interact. So like, for example, if you have an older generation of immigrants who showed up um, at a place and had very little and had to like work very hard, they will often resent newer waves of immigrants that come in that have more privilege and have more money and start like driving up real estate place prices and so on, right? Um, so there's, uh, there's that. Um, there's also, like we talked about earlier, culture clash between generations and like those who um, were born in a new land and their assimilation into a dominant culture versus what viewpoints their uh, older generations still retain from a homeland. So just, I guess, keep in mind if you are world building that uh, no group is homogenous. There's, you can take any group and keep subdividing it into, um, into different slices. It would be simplistic to say all Cleons are like this, all orcs are like this, you know, you'd have to 
take that down even further to be like, okay, well, even within the group of elves who migrated from this place to this place, there's the elves that want to go home versus the elves that want to stay. And within the elves that want to stay, there's the elves who want to stay and fit in and the elves who want to stay but take over. You know, so like you can keep breaking down different interests with any group of people and, you know, you can just look look to our own society for the fact that like it may look like we have you know say two political parties but drill down and you'll you'll find more and more competing interests every group of human beings that you try to depict yeah and i think that that motivation for being there staying there going where you're going to go is such a rich ground for for storytelling and character development because it's like yeah, why did you leave to begin with? Are those goals still the same as they were 20, 30, 40 years ago? And was the intention of migration permanent or was the intention of migration temporary? And, you know, to what extent did you intend to assimilate with the local population of wherever you settle? And to what extent did you intend, did those intentions change over time? As I think really fun to play with and interesting it's really weird for me to think about living in the Midwest where I do like we have a local Amish population and it's like that those were like German Anabaptist immigrants, however many like century and a half ago or whatever. And like their intentions have really not changed that much. Like their intentions have been to be an insular community in a place that would let them be an insular community the whole time. And that's actually pretty unusual for a community moving into a space like the intentions change over time. I think this gets really interesting when you introduce speculative elements like magic. And what was, uh, you know, the relationship that existed um, with magic in the homeland versus, you know, is that different in a, a different population that's moved away and been exposed to other cultures and civilizations? Do they have a different way of using the magic? Do they have a different attitude about the magic? Has their attitude toward the magic been influenced by other groups? Magic is often a stand-in, uh, and tech is as well, um, for all sorts of, of things in our own world. Um, resources, power, and um, you can explore some of those once you have like a speculative element like magic or or advanced tech because nobody ever has the same opinion on anything. So there's definitely going to be people who have differing views on on the magic or on the tech and how is that being affected by by contact with other civilizations. I mean, you could play with so many fun story hooks there. Like, suppose you're part of a diaspora community, but your magic is tied to your land and when you get to a new land your magic doesn't work anymore what do you do how do you negotiate who you are if that's been a part of your identity and and now you don't have access to it or maybe it's not there in the beginning but if you get enough of your people here or if you bring your gods over in a certain way if you build the right structures the magic will follow like that could just be an, an absolutely fascinating story of that kind of social negotiation. Or do you keep your magic, but your children start to have the magic of your new home instead of instead of the old one? And then what does that mean in terms of passing on what's important to you and what's their building is what's going to be important to them? Yeah. Mom, Mom I know you want me to use a wand, but I can't. <laughs> I physically can't. I have to use crystals because I was born. I just can't. I can't use your wand, Mom. No matter how hard I try, I will never set anything on fire, Dad. It's just not going to happen. Get used to it. God. 
Yeah, I did that with um, with the Greenbone Saga because I have diaspora communities of the Kekanese who come from a land where there is the magic jade and it's used openly and um, is part of their culture on a daily basis to a diaspora community where jade is outlawed and so they have to wear it hidden and it's covert and they are maintaining it but they're doing it in a in a very subtle illegal way and having to kind of get around the dominant culture in order to maintain that part of their heritage as well as a different diaspora community where it is jade is seen as evil and um, sinful and so a lot of the people who wear jade end up falling into crime and kind of creating this uh, this subculture that glorifies it because they're they, they are an oppressed minority in this other land i i treat magic very much as a as a resource or like a, a grounded thing obviously different places or different different societies have a different view of it and that brings up all these opportunities to like play with the magic in cool ways. And I think it's worth asking too, how does the use of magic change over time, just in tandem with all the other societal and technological and political changes that are going to happen in a world? I mean, if you have been using fire magic to start your fires and finally someone invents the lighter, it's like, you know what? It's actually not worth it anymore. Like this just it's this is easy i have like, a flip phone now i don't need to open a scry hole <laughs> i've always wondered that about some magic i um i've thought about that uh when it, in whenever i've read harry potter there's definitely been times when i'm like you know i know owls are cool but like it would be a lot easier to just <laughs> call this person <laughs> like you are not so removed from the muggle world that you don't realize cell phones are actually just a lot easier to handle than owls. <laughs> they, they eat far less mice. It's just less cleanup. But on the flip side, technology applied to magic is also uh, pretty cool to consider. I had um, in my books this drug that was developed that allowed people to use this magic resource when um, they wouldn't have been able to before. And um, that opened up like a social can of worms because oftentimes in fantasy stories, you have like this blood right idea where these people can use magic and these people cannot use magic. And it's just kind of accepted that that is the case. But in the real world, there would be scientists and entrepreneurs working on this to figure out a way to make this more accessible to people. I mean, profit motives being what they are, right? So, um, of course, there would be some military uh, that would figure out how to access this if it wasn't accessible now. Um, so I like the idea of the speculative elements also still being subject to real world forces of of technology and capitalism and like all the things that affect everything. I was going to say, I don't know how far in the future you go in Jade Legacy, but I just imagined like tech bros making Jade based apps for people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I didn't go that far. <laughs> NFTs for Jade. No! no! <laughs> I'm just imagining like societal changes too, how that could affect how magic is practiced or who practices magic. Like if you have 
of magical culture that's all based upon like young women go and enter the virgin priestess cult and this is where they learn magic and this is and you have to have all this you know whatever and then that's a pretty good gig but then there are more opportunities opening up in the society for women and suddenly that's not a fantastic gig anymore so who's going to practice magic because i'd really (laughs) rather go to college so Like, does it become a weird, like, why Why do you have a purity ring to, just to get magic when you can just get a job and not worry? Seems complicated, frankly, so. Or does the magic itself go through shifts of whether that is a desirable thing to do or not? Or is it desirable for certain kinds of people? I'm sort of thinking, I'm making an analogy to computers right now and how computer science began as women's work. Because it's like, oh, well, that's just, that's, you know, it was derived from, um the looms and it was like oh that's that's easy for their lady brains to keep track of but then as it became a more desirable field a more lucrative field tech bros took it over and then it's i mean there's still tech bros in charge of the corporations and things but computers themselves are now used by everyone we all have them it's not a specialized skill set to be able to use a computer anymore certainly there are specialized skill sets in inside of that with development or repair or whatever you have but I mean, we're all sitting in front of one right now, <laughs> and that has changed. So, like, could magic go through similar shifts of its value, its appropriateness, its desirability in a society? Like, does it just hit being as casually normal as using your using your iPhone? And in conjunction with that, there was this really weird pilot that didn't become a TV show... That, like, you could only find the pilot by, like, like finding, like, the right underground links or whatever. But it was, the whole idea was that the world was basically the modern <laughs> world, except everything was magic instead of tech. So, like, if you're, the heat was wrong in your apartment, you had to get somebody to, like, come and unhex the, the ivy that, like, kept your, kept your apartment warm or cold. And, like, it was all, like, every little technological thing was just done magic instead but then like there's this strange murder that nobody can figure out because there's no magical residue there's no like and it turns out that somebody made a gun and that's like the weirdest thing ever and that's (laughs) 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 you can just kill somebody from distance with and no magical spell will protect you yeah and we and we can't trace it without it it was a fascinating the magical ballistics are yielding nothing bit of world building for a one hour drama that was made for fox tv that went nowhere of how much they put in of like everything (laughs) is magic instead of technology but it's still a very recognizable world at the same time when it comes to disruptive things happening in your society i think one thing to keep in mind is that social change is harder and slower than technological change So there's going to be this period when you have a disruptive change like the printing press, like the internet. Something has fundamentally shifted, but people don't get it yet. And they're still kind of operating with old social norms. And that is, I think, a a fascinating place to play because there's so much conflict and weird repercussions, right? I think like we've certainly seen that in our own time where the internet and uh, social media have had this outsized influence on our political system in a way that we haven't caught up to yet. What does that look like, you know, in whatever 
speculative world you're creating. If the gun shows up and you can't, it can't be detected by any of the, of the magical investigators, you know, what, what happens because there's going to be a spate of guns that get created, but the behavior is still going to be very much, a, a you know, based on a world without that technology and what weird consequences result. Yeah, and you have like the lag in catching up and then you have the like deliberate choice to retain these cultural elements because we value them or we like them or we just can't imagine going on without them. And I feel like there's interesting tension there on like, so what? what's eventually going to just shift out because it's just lagging behind versus what are we going to double down on and be like, no, we like it this way and we're going to keep doing it this way because that is... That is the way, and we must. And then also, there's a technological shift or a magical shift, and then with that comes the slow social change. And then behind that even more is the slow legal change, because it takes even longer for that to catch up. Like, how long was anything of, like, these are crimes happening on the internet. Can can we stop them? And, like, well, no, because the internet's not real. So can <laughs> there's nothing we can do because it's just not real. <laughs> it's like, but, but We can't control anything that happens but, but, there. It's some sort but, of magical but crimes. Well, it's not untethered to reality. We have no laws. It's <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely a, a Wild West period that comes with any sort of um, disruption in your society. One of the cool things to keep in mind is how that disruption can actually um, enable your characters in whatever journey they have. So one of the things that you sometimes see in fantasy stories uh, is the like exceptional character who for whatever reason like breaks out of the norm. I'll give you an example. Uh, Let's say you have a um, world in which only boys can be trained to be dragon riders. And then you have like, the character who is going to be the first female dragon rider. And one of the questions, if you're going to be a good world builder, is, well, why is this character the first female dragon rider? Like, if she is an anomaly, well, what allows her to be an anomaly? Because it can't just be, well, she's really plucky <laughs> and hardworking. Because, like, if she wa- if that was the case, some other person would have already become the first female dragon rider. <laughs> there has to be like something that answers the question of why this person and why now? And what's the consequence of them going against the norms of their society? And it, that could be enabled and complicated by social change. So um, if you just have a story where someone becomes the first female dragon rider and everyone goes, hurrah, and that's the end. Like that is a really simplistic Um, world-building backdrop against which to have that story. But let's say there is some war going, dragon war going on, and the, like, male population of dragon riders is being depleted. And, you know, now all of a sudden these women who were previously only allowed to care for the dragons are being called on to, like, ride them. Like, there you can think of, like, the way social change and external forces is actually going to enable your character journey and interact with your plot and then you go to after the war is won and be like no now please you're not supposed to ride the dragons now that was just a temporary thing so like 
Rosie, turn in your saddle. That was fine for when it was an emergency, but it's no longer an emergency, and we need to go back to the old way. <laughs> right, and right. No, well, we yeah, already like opened the, this door. Like the post World War Two, yeah. the boys are home from the war now. You gotta gotta give up your gotta give up your job because gotta give him his job back. So yeah, the the, the consequences of like but no, I liked yeah, riveting things. Was fun, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This gets to the whole like answer the question of why. Why are the orcs invading now? You know, why is there a coup against the king? The king, like, there's the idea that uh, the only constant is change is going to be really helpful for you to advance your plot if you like work it in in a way that feels organic and that all the things line up for whatever crisis you want to happen in your story. So this is new since the last time that you were with us, Fonda, but we have started asking our guests. Because we didn't have guest stars. No, we, we, we didn't have fancy things like rules and traditions. So speaking of change, <laughs> we ask our guests to give us a little bit of world building trivia to plug into our podcast built world that we have going. So we would love to get something from you today before you leave. Ooh, Okay. Well, I think I'm going to go with this theme of um, cross-cultural pollination. So I would like the world that you're building to have some sort of popular food that is the result of two cultures colliding and and cross-pollinating. And it could be like sushi burger or, you know, something... <laughs> To whatever it is um, that makes sense for that world. But yes, a, a unique food item that comes as a result of, of cultural cross-pollination. You know, we like food and I think that we can do that. Yeah, That's, We yeah. can probably do several of that those. Is <laughs> right up our alley so very much. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Fonda. Well, it's always a pleasure to come on and... Thanks for having me on and keep world building. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on December 8th, where we'll be making the world go round and talking about money and financial systems. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend to shout about us on the internet or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.